Good morning. Take your copy of God's Word and open it to John chapter 14. And uh, we will continue our discussion this morning of, that we began last week where we said we're going to just take a section of each subsequent chapter of John's Gospel uh, over about a seven to eight week period that will take us up to and through uh, Easter Sunday. And so last week we started with that in, in John 13 and, and looked at Jesus' example of washing the disciples' feet and the challenge that he issued to them to follow his example and to love as he has loved. And so this morning, obviously, after 13 is 14, so we'll spend our time this morning looking at just a few verses from John chapter 14. And you may be thinking, well, if we're in John chapter 14, of course, in some capacity, we have to look at John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Um, That's actually not where we're going to spend our uh, time and attention this morning, not because uh, that's not a terrific verse, not because that's not a terrific truth. Um, It's probably the most well-known verse, um, especially in, in John 14, but maybe even uh, second to John three sixteen, it might be the most well known verse in John's gospel. And while verse six is absolutely an integral part of the message of Jesus and the gospel, it's not the only matter of significance that Jesus would speak to in John chapter fourteen. Again, Jesus has just finished telling his disciples that his time is at hand, that Judas is going to betray him. And he commands his disciples to love one another, following the example that he has set for them. And they will understand this example more fully in just a few short hours when he's crucified, when he's suspended high above the earth. One of the things I like to do is I navigate scripture sometimes, and especially in a setting like the upper room, beginning in John chapter 13, where Jesus' betrayal, Jesus says his time is at hand. I like to imagine what it was like being in that room. Hearing that one of the men was going to betray Jesus. Jesus pointing out that it's Judas. Judas getting up and leaving. And Jesus carries on. And and, and you got to imagine the despair that the disciples would be feeling sitting in that room. And so Jesus, in the way that Jesus does, he follows this New commandment to love one another following his example, I would submit to you with some encouragement. And he calls them ultimately to set their sights upon him and all that he is about to do as a means to address the anxiety that is filling this room the disciples are sitting in. Suddenly the disciples feel, on some level, I don't think they fully understood this yet. We know scripture tells us many of them didn't understand until he was crucified. But in in some small way, they've heard Jesus teaching and they've heard the things that Jesus has said. And so in some small way, I believe this reality is setting in that we're going to have to fend for ourselves. He's leaving. Jesus is going to go away from us. He's going to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to go away from us. And now we have to fend for ourselves. In the subsequent verses to John 14, 6, Thomas is asking Jesus about, Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is encouragement. And that's when Thomas says, well, how can we go? We don't know where you're going. And he says, I, we don't know the way to where you're going. And, and Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
This is encouragement that he's bringing to the disciples. Furthermore, a couple verses later, Philip requests, he says, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus, he responds to this request from Philip by reassuring them that they have seen the Father because they have seen Jesus. That Jesus came as the full manifestation of the Father. The grace and truth that Jesus was, was literally to see the character, to see the Father. And so Jesus is encouraging these men. Even though he's leaving, there's much encouragement for them to be had and to be found in his departure. And so we pick up our text this morning, just a few verses, beginning in verse 15, as you see on the screen in front of you. In John 14, beginning in verse 15, we read this. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, what a privilege it is to know that Jesus did not leave or abandon his disciples. They were not left alone to fend for themselves, and all of Jesus' ministry pointed to the point in which he would depart from them. It was all preparation for them carrying on the ministry that Jesus was going to entrust to them at his departure. But even more reassuring and even more encouraging is Jesus preparing the disciples and leading them and teaching them and instructing them. And, and we even see before he went, he sent them out to do the work and to learn and to be taught further as they worked. God, we see the encouragement that when Jesus would depart, he would send, you would send at his request, yourself in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that this Holy Spirit, literally equally Jesus and equally the Father, one and the same, he would come from your grace and your mercy to give him to indwell believers for all of, uh, all of the scope of life from here to eternity to be in the presence of you, to be led by you, to be guided by you. Uh, God, to be uh, just, just that the Spirit would bring um, the wisdom and the understanding of how to to, to carry on the task that Jesus had left. There is no greater encouragement for a follower of Jesus Christ than knowing, God, that your very presence is with them in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we thank you today for the truth of your word. And we do pray as we've sung, God, that you would speak today from your word. Um, God, I pray that you would move me out of the way and that you would work in spite of me, God, and that you would be glorified as you do so. And so we pray today for your glory, God, and we ask that you work in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And see, Jesus' desire for his disciples was that they would manifest him to the world that he was leaving. He wasn't going to be, he was no longer going to be there to manifest himself or the Father through himself to the world. But this was nonetheless what Jesus desired of his disciples, that they would manifest him to the world and that they would do this by the way that they love one another. But as we've noted, or as we will further note, there's an issue at hand when it came to them manifesting Jesus to the world if he was set to depart from them. You see, there's a reality that they could understand going out and teaching as Jesus has commanded them to do, and in doing so, Jesus would be glorified by this. 
But they did so knowing that they could always come back to Jesus. We know, we see, we looked last week in discipleship class. I always, I can't remember if it was Matthew or Mark, but chapter 10, we talked about we saw Jesus sending them out and they came back. And he used those opportunities to further teach and to further instruct. And so as the disciples went out to make the glory of God known, they always had Jesus to come back to. But now this task of making Jesus known to the world was a little bit different because Jesus is doubling down and reiterating and reminding them, I'm set to depart from you. But I believe Jesus' desire was to encourage his disciples as they set out after he departed. And he does so by reminding them, I may not be here, but you will not be left alone. And Jesus tells the disciples, you will not be left alone because the Father will be faithful to send them one who will dwell with them forever and who will enable them to press ahead for the cause of Christ even after his death and resurrection ascension and he physically is gone from them. And so this morning I want to examine another statement from the final night of Jesus' life. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, Jesus' presence with the disciples again, as we've noted, was coming to an end. And as such, he reminded them that even though he was leaving, see, one of the things I love about the word of God is even though Jesus is leaving, he's reminding his disciples, God is faithful. I'm going to depart from you, but the one who is faithful is going to send one to you. And we'll see this in a minute, but Jesus literally tells his disciples, it's actually better for you that I depart from you. It's actually better that Jesus would leave so that the Holy Spirit would come. This is what we see the Word of God tell us. Jesus says this, and we'll look at this in a few minutes. But he says, the Father will be faithful to send his very presence to the disciples. And in doing so, they would be enabled to demonstrate that they love God and to walk as they were commanded. And so I want to see three realities this morning of the presence of the Holy Spirit of God as it relates to keeping the commandments as Jesus has called his disciples to do. And the first is this. The presence of the Holy Spirit is, and now we're going to give you three things, necessary for the follower of Christ to keep his commandments. The Holy Spirit's presence is necessary for the person who identifies with Jesus to keep the commandments. Of Jesus. You see, the professing follower or a person cannot walk in obedience to the commands of Christ without the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. And you know, lots of times, if you're like me, you might read verse 15 and it almost reads like a measuring stick, doesn't it? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's almost a, a barometer. But you see, the context would suggest something different. The context would teach us the reality that the verse actually serves to remind the believer of the reality that the proof of their love for Christ is the manifesting of obedience by the indwelling Holy Spirit of God in a person's life. So in short, and we'll flesh this out, we'll talk more about this, I'll probably say it over and over and over, it's not a measuring stick, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's a reassurance that the Spirit of God is dwelling within you, that you love one another, that you love others, and you walk in my commandments. Because you can't walk in the commandments of Christ without the Holy Spirit of God. 
And so when Jesus is saying a person is obedient to Christ, manifesting their love for him, it's because the Spirit has brought about true obedience in the believer's life. The reality is love of God is manifested by obedience to God. Obedience in this case is a conformity to what Christ has called believers to. In this direct context, his disciples. Now it's important, I think, that we note that a person can do things that in and of themselves seem good, right? Like, you don't have to have the Holy Spirit necessarily to be kind, for example. But without the Holy Spirit of God, being kind is not a fulfillment of the command of Christ. Because the Spirit is necessary to produce obedience to Christ's commands. For example, Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, the Apostle Paul writing to the churches in Galatia says, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, excuse me, in, in Galatians 5.22, we read of the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he goes on to say in that context of the conversation in Galatians, against such things there is no law. And so here's the reality of the fruit of the Spirit. It's produced by the Spirit, not the individual. It's not called the fruit of the Christian. It's not called the fruit of the follower of Jesus. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Biblical love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control cannot be produced by men. It is produced by the Spirit of God. And so when a person is in fellowship with Christ and being filled with the Spirit, as Paul also says in Galatians chapter 5, Paul exhorts the believers, uh, or as, as he exhorts the believers to be filled, the fruit of that is the, what we just looked at, what Paul says as the fruit of the Spirit. If we're going to keep the commands of Christ because we say that we love him, then the Spirit must be the means whereby we do this. Because it's the only means whereby we can do this. And this is why this passage about the present of, presence of the Holy Spirit in the believer following the departure of Jesus is so vital and such an encouragement. Because Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to go away from you, but the Father is going to be faithful to send one to you who will remain with you and he will lead you. And, he, and we're going to talk in a minute, he's going to lead you in all truth. And out of that, he will produce, uh, he will manifest himself in your life to the world around you. And so this helper we see here in our text that Jesus says will be sent Obviously, by now, we know and we understand this is in reference to the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting because the word that, again, I read from the ESV. I don't know what translation you have this morning. But in the ESV, in verse 16, it uses the word helper. And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, John refers to him, that is the Holy Spirit, as the helper. But the word that actually appears in the Greek is the word advocate. And an advocate is a person who acts as a spokesperson or representative 
of someone else's policy, purpose, or cause, especially before a judge in a court of law. So I think most of us are probably familiar with the word or the the idea of an advocate, somebody who speaks on behalf of someone else, um, who leads uh, the, the charge, if you will, in their cause or in their position. And so what you have is believers being given a commandment to go, right? And to manifest the love of Christ to one another and to the world that they live in. And, and, and John is telling uh, the story or the account here of Jesus telling the disciples, disciples, as you go and do this, the Father will give you one who will help you to this end. He will plead for you as you seek to go and be obedient and follow commands. The one's coming who's going to help you to do that, who's going to indwell you and enable you and empower you to do such a thing. And I think it's so important that as we have a conversation about the promise of the Holy Spirit dwelling within the believer, okay, I think it's so important that we have the conversation and understanding and reminding ourselves that this is just as, if not more significant, okay, than Jesus physically, literally being with us. That's the reality of what Jesus is talking about when the Father will send the helper, Most of us would say, man, it would be so great if I could just have Jesus right next to me and I could dialogue and I could figure out and I could ask questions and I would do this and I would do that. And here's the beauty of the word of God and the plan and the purpose of God. You have it. It's called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus Christ. And the word of God promises that the Father will send the Holy Spirit to indwell believers, enabling them, empowering them to be obedient to the commands of Scripture and to manifest the love of God to the world that we live in. And so his abiding with them in ways that is the Holy Spirit, in ways that Jesus could not do, was why Jesus told the disciples, as we've referred to already in John 16, 7, He said, it's actually better for you if I depart from you. This is what Jesus told his disciples. He said the spirit would come and it would stay. And as the disciples and believers today live in submission to him, they would be guided and they would manifest a love that is evidenced in the keeping of the commandments of Christ. So when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, it's not a barometer, it's not a measuring stick, but it's an encouragement because when you keep the commandments of God, it's proof that the Holy Spirit of God resides within you. And so Jesus is encouraging his disciples, but the presence of the Holy Spirit is necessary for believers to keep the commandments of Christ. The presence of the Holy Spirit is the promise, secondly, of Christ to guide believers in all truth. He says, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit here as the spirit of truth. And we cannot overstate the importance of the spirit of truth in our lives. And I, and I even, as Justin prepared to sing that last song there, Speak, O Lord, and, and he reminded us, where is truth found? Speak to us, God. He does speak to us. Where? In his word. And what a testament to the faithfulness of God that he has preserved and given us his word to convey truth, and he's given us the Holy Spirit of God to know and understand truth. 
You see, it's the, it's the spirit that guides the believer into all truth. Apart from the spirit of God, no individual is able to discern truth from error. You cannot discern truth from error without the Holy Spirit of God. And, and Jesus tells us it's because the spirit of truth who enables the believer to discern truth from error, the world cannot understand. The world does not see the Spirit of God. Therefore, they cannot understand how the Spirit of God works. Jesus says very clearly, the Holy Spirit of God is not received, known, or seen by the world. Therefore, the world cannot... And and again, we take some steps here to, to, to try to flesh this out. But if Jesus says the Spirit of truth, that is the Holy Spirit, will come and indwell believers and guide them in all truth, and then in the very same breath he says the world cannot know, see, or hear truth, the Spirit of truth, because they don't see, know, or hear him... The, the, the deduction of what Jesus is saying is that without the Spirit, you can't know truth. And that's why we're tossed to and fro all over in the world that we live in today. And when you think about this reality of the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, right, because it doesn't know Him, uh, because it doesn't see Him, it makes a lot of sense in light of what Scripture teaches us elsewhere, Namely, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And we preached Ephesians about a year ago, and so we understand that like dead things can't make themselves alive. Dead things can't understand truth, right? Dead things are made alive by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, whereby people can then understand truth. If you ever wonder why, you look at the world we live in, man, it, I don't have to you know, take much time at all to give you the opportunity to consider the world that we live in and why things are the way that they are in the world that we live in. They're that way because the majority of people on this planet function without the spirit of truth. That's why our world is in the shape that it's in. Because the majority of the people living on this planet function without the spirit of truth. And the Bible tells us without the spirit of truth, you can't know truth. You can't understand truth. And Jesus, he paints this stark contrast for the disciples and how they are to function in the world. And so we must understand in the church, as I believe Jesus was leading the disciples to understand, that the Spirit of God has has been given and, and part of its function is to be a revealer of what is true and what is not true. You see, a believer in Jesus must first know what the truth is before they can be led in it. You can't be a believer in Jesus until you know and understand truth. And that's why we talk about like the Holy Spirit is working in people's hearts and in people's lives, enabling them to understand truth when they hear it. And then when a person professes faith in Jesus Christ, now they permanently have the Holy Spirit indwelling them and leading them further in more truth, that they would grow and understand truth. Today, there are so many examples of truth according to the world that we live in. And again, this makes sense, right? Because if you don't have the one who teaches truth or teaches you what truth is, truth becomes relative, right? And you guys, we've talked about this before, so this is nothing new, right? But, but when truth becomes relative, 
there becomes an issue in how we relate that to Scripture. There's, again, so many examples or ideas of truth according to the world that we live in. But the notion of subjective truth is contrary to Scripture. And again, when I say subjective truth, and I was just sharing with somebody this morning, I'm 36 years old, and my whole life, I have, when I be having this conversation, I mix up subjective and objective, right? It's terrible. And that's really actually quite dangerous when you're having a conversation about things that are true and you know, things that are based on truth and things that are based on circumstances or feelings, right? Like the world that we live in. And so you got to make sure you get this right. And so I'm going to give you a little nugget that kind of dawned on me this week. I remember things by association. I all the time, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that. So that's how I'm going to. Now, here's how I'm going to probably for forevermore distinguish the difference between subjective and objective. I see some of y'all cheesing like you think I'm getting ready to bring you this great nugget of wisdom. No, it's ridiculous. Here it is. Subjective is subject to, to the, the, the circumstances or the situations that are causing the people to make decisions, right? Or like in this case, that's causing people as they determine what is truth as they follow Jesus, right? And, and objective would say, look, it's rooted in truth, And so it's so vital that we understand that there's a stark difference, right? Like, we cannot operate by subjective truth. And we've we've said before that this is like, um, you guys have probably all heard the phrase, what's true for me is true for me, and what's true for you is true for you. So, right, like that's, let's just live and let live, right? Like, we've all heard these kinds of things. There can't be more than one truth. If you have more than one truth, you have two untruths. There can only be one truth. And we live in a world that says truth is subjective. And it makes sense, right? Because Jesus says the Holy Spirit will guide you. Excuse me. The Holy Spirit will guide you and lead you in truth. But those who don't have truth function subjectively. Truth is determined by Whatever, really, whatever somebody wants to use to determine truth is what makes subjective truth subjective. But I want to remind you where we started this morning. In John 14, 6, what does Jesus say? I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. See, truth is not subjective. Truth is objective in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ and what he has declared. He demonstrates clearly that truth is not subjective. He doesn't say, I'm a truth. He doesn't say, I'm some truth. He doesn't say, I'm a kind of true. He says, I am the truth. And one of the great promises of God is that the presence of his Holy Spirit will guide believers in their growth and knowledge and understanding of truth, right? John would tell us elsewhere in his gospel about truth, that truth is what sets us free, right? And if truth is what sets a person free, and if there is only one truth, then those who claim a different truth, they're trapped in a lie. And ultimately, like we've said, anything but the truth. You know, we have all these these conversations that exist in our world about You know, I mean, everything on the range of spectrum from there is no such thing as God to, well, all roads lead to God, or we need to try hard, or we need to be good. These are all truths that are based upon subjective things, or they're supposed truths that are based upon subjective things. But Jesus says truth is not subjective. I am the truth. 
And so we have to understand as we engage in a world that cannot and does not know truth, we have to, the goal is ultimately as you try to minister to folks is to help them see the truth so that they could be led by the truth. And so again, for the believer, we have the promise and knowing that God has given us his spirit in order that it could guide us and lead us in truth. What an awesome encouragement it is to know that the Holy Spirit of God that indwells a believer brings about the transformation of that believer and empowers them to carry out the ministry of Jesus. See, and therein lies this whole conversation where Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The Holy Spirit works in our lives to change us, to be more like Jesus, and empowers us to bear the fruit that Jesus has called believers to bear. Because ultimately, it's the Spirit working in us that's producing this fruit. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers believers to keep the commands of Jesus. And when a person loves Christ and is filled with the Spirit and walking in subjection to it, then they keep the commands of Christ. And so as the Holy Spirit guides and transforms people, people are enabled to continue the task that has been left by Jesus to be accomplished. And lastly, the presence of the Holy Spirit is the means whereby God continues his ministry and resides with believers. This is verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Think about the significance of those words for the disciples in the upper room. Jesus is set to be betrayed. This is the last night of his earthly life. Again, we paint the scene again. Judas has left. The disciples are kind of figuring, trying to figure out what in the world's going on. Jesus is reminding them he's leaving them. He's going to depart from them. But he says, you know, I'm going to ask. My father's going to send one to, to, to guide you, the helper. And he doubles down on this when he says, but I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And this would prove to be incredibly comforting. I have to imagine anyways, because Jesus in the beginning of chapter 14 tells his disciples that he's leaving to prepare a place for them and that he would come back for them. But I also imagine as much as Jesus saying this to the disciples would be an encouragement, I have to imagine it would be a bit perplexing to the disciples as well. But what Jesus is telling them is clear to us, right, on this side of history because we have the completed canon of Scripture. He's telling them, and we know and understand, his coming to them is in the form of the Holy Spirit that the Father is going to send at the day of Pentecost to remain upon believers until the restrainer, that is the Holy Spirit, is removed from this world. He dwells with believers for forever. And we understand this in a way that I don't think the disciples yet understood. You know, as we continue to walk through Scripture, we know if we're familiar with, with the Word of God, we know the events that followed this upper room meeting with Jesus and his disciples. We know he was betrayed in the garden. We know he was handed over to the Roman soldiers. We know that he was crucified. We know that he rose three days later. And we know that 40 days after that, he ascended to the Father's right hand where he currently resides. And in the midst of all of that, he had conversations with his disciples. And, and the last one he had, he said, and we've looked at this for seven weeks prior to starting the Gospel of John, he told I want you to go back to Jerusalem and do what? I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. I want you to wait for it to come upon you. And when it does, then you are to be my disciples. You are to baptize and you are to teach, making disciples. 
Could you imagine being one of the original 12 disciples and hearing all of this teaching of Jesus, seeing Jesus be crucified, knowing that the grave was empty, being able to experience the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection, but prior to his ascension? And then could you imagine being in Jerusalem and what we call Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when Jesus, or when, excuse me, when Peter is preaching to the Jews, and he's telling them that they crucified the Messiah, the one that God had sent as anointing. He was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, and they, they crucified him. Could you imagine being there when the Holy Spirit come upon all those people? Could you just imagine being a disciple? They would almost be like, <laughs> this is what he's meant. This is what Jesus talked about. And they understood it in some ways because, again, in the Old Testament, we understand that the Holy Spirit kind of came and went. It didn't per- permanently indwell. But in the New Testament, it does. And so Jesus has promised to not leave his disciples, that he will come to them, and he comes to them in in the form, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he comes to them so that they could, uh, so that he would reside with them, and that they could continue to carry on the ministry that Jesus had started and prepared them to do. Because the Holy Spirit was coming upon them. It was just as much God as Christ himself was as he's preparing the disciples. We have to know, we have to understand, we have to see scripture as it presents it. The Holy Spirit being with the disciples and with believers today, and we've touched on this, is just as significant as being with Jesus physically. It would be really easy to just kind of stop there But I want to draw our attention in closing to verse 31. Jesus says, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. It's interesting because the the section we looked at began with, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So again, Jesus is telling his disciples that the Holy Spirit will come, it will indwell them, and then as it manifests the fruit in their lives, we'll know that we love him as we're following in obedience to his commandments because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, once again, points the disciples to the example that he has set for them. I'm calling you to keep my commandments as proof that the Spirit is dwelling in you and that you love me, just as what? I have loved the Father, and I have done all that he has commanded me. Jesus does as the Father commanded him. Why? So that the world may know that he loved the Father. And there is a relationship between loving God and keeping the things that he has commanded. That relationship is, you know, predicated upon or hinges upon the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so Jesus once again serves as an example. And he once again calls the disciples to follow that example. And the proof of our love for Christ is the obedience that comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit of the believer. The Holy Spirit, its presence is necessary. It's necessary for the follower of Christ to keep the commands of Christ. It's necessary because it guides us in all truth. And it's necessary because it's the means whereby we continue the ministry that Christ has left for the church to do in his absence. May we be a people who understand 
the presence of the Holy Spirit and understand the significance of it and, 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 and why he has been sent to us and why and how he's working in us that the goals and that the glory of Christ might be manifest in the world that we live in whereby they would know that we love Jesus because we live in obedience to his command.